Welcome to the Discovery Pod, where we talk to leading experts from the University of Adelaide about solutions to society's most pressing challenges. It may surprise you to know that we have all eaten fruit and vegetables picked by illegal workers in Australia. Discussing this important issue is Dr Joanna Howe. Joanna is an Associate Professor at Adelaide Law School and a leading Australian expert on the legal regulation of temporary labour migration. Welcome Joanna, thank you so much for being on the Discovery Pod today. Thank you. So to begin, can we just discuss what horticulture actually is and how it operates in Australia? Sure. So Horticulture is actually one of Australia's biggest sectors and every time you go to the supermarket and you buy a cucumber or a tomato or a strawberry, you're buying essentially fresh, fresh fruit and vegetables and that's horticulture. So it's a subset of agriculture, which is things like cotton and rice and dairy and beef. But horticulture is simply um, the stuff that's healthy and good for you, the fruit and veg. Right, okay. So can you lead us through that process of it's it's the fruit and veg is being grown and then it yes. comes into our supermarket? What's that whole process? Absolutely. And I think uh, the public is getting more and more interested in this, Isabel. So um, we want to know where, uh, where where the stuff that ends up on our dining room table comes from. And essentially, um, the Australian horticulture industry is all over Australia. So in our research, we travelled to 13 regions across Australia, um, from, you know, Catherine in the Northern Territory to Tasmania to Mildura in Victoria, all the way to Wanneroo in WA. So it takes you everywhere. Um, so it's been a fascinating research project to be involved in. But horticulture is grown um, in the fields, sometimes in glass houses. So, for example, in South Australia and Virginia, we've got incredible technology um, with glass houses that are climate controlled that can grow strawberries and tomatoes all year round. Mm -hmm. um, and consumers are interested in that. They don't just want seasonal vegetables mm -hmm. and fruit. They want to be able to have their strawberries all year round and their, and their tomatoes with their dishes every, you know, throughout the year and their basil, not just in summer. So it's grown in the fields or in glass houses. Um, workers will pick it um, and different types of produce requires different types of skills. So banana trees, you know, you need to be physically very strong to get up there and, and get them down. Same with oranges, but then other produce is down low and you have to be able to bend down and be agile and pick the berries and sometimes they're on thorns and, it, you know, you're wearing gloves and it, it's very physically hard work. And the thing is that the produce is there regardless of the weather or regardless of the time of year. So, for example, cherries, which we all, you know, love having cherries on our Christmas uh, dinner table, but, you know, what that requires is hordes of uh, young people essentially to go to cherry picking places like Orange in New South Wales and to pick them over Christmas. So, you know, in the height of summer, 40 degree weather over three to six weeks, um, you've got thousands of workers picking cherries so that we can have them. Right. And just thinking of the sheer quantity of fruit and veg in all of the supermarkets and fruit and veg shops around the country, that's a lot of produce and obviously a lot of labour. Um, and that labour, I can imagine, is in very high demand. I know that your, your work is involved in the treatment of those workers. Um, can you describe to us what you're so passionate about in that supply chain? Sure. So what's really interesting we found is that 
there just aren't the workers to do this kind of work from the Australian population. So typically going back 20, 30 years, it was Australians who, who, would, who would do a gap year, they wouldn't go straight to university, they'd do a summer fruit picking, um, there'd be elderly people who'd get a, you know, a caravan or a camper van and they'd travel around Australia and they'd do that in their retirement. And that was where the work sort of, and, and there were migrant workers as well who would come and, and wouldn't necessarily get into other industries, but they'd be permanently in Australia, but working on farms and doing this picking work. And it's not just picking because then the veggies obviously need to be packed and then they need to travel to the supermarkets and the retailers where we see them. Um, but what's really been transformed in the last two decades is that we've had a huge influx of migrant workers and the government has changed the policy settings to make that possible. But what has resulted is a real deterioration in labour standards on farms. So, you know, you see the, the media reports about fruit pickers being paid $3 an hour, um, some having to do sexual favours in return um, for work. There's all these sorts of awful stories that we hear about, you know, 15 workers living in a share house mm. um, and, and being charged exorbitant accommodation. So we, we sort of, we've got this situation now where we're relying on overseas workers to do this fruit picking work for us. Um, and our government has changed the laws to enable them to come in. But what's interesting is why? Why do they put up with that work, you know, and, and how can we change it? So, so that's essentially what my research team has tried to answer. Right. So in terms of that why, obviously there's an incentive for yeah. people to come and work yeah. in Australia in such terrible conditions. What is that incentive and what does policy have to do with that? Okay, excellent question. So what's really interesting is that in 2004, the Howard Coalition Government introduced an incentive for working holiday makers, I'll call them backpackers, to come to Australia. And instead of just getting one year to be in Australia, they would get two years if they did 88 days work on a farm. And so um, what this meant was European workers, Europeans who had never thought about working on a farm. In fact, Italy relies on migrant workers um, from Eastern Europe, from poorer countries to, to pick their fresh fruit and veg. But yet we've got Italian backpackers coming to Australia who would turn their nose up at this kind of farm work in their country, but they'll do it in Australia to get their 88 days mm. so they can get a second year on their visa. Mm -hmm. And the farm industry has been so reliant on this visa extension. It's almost like an addiction. Um, we spoke to over 150 farmers as part of our research, many of whom really do try to do the right thing. And I, I think that's really important to say at the outset, horticulture is a growth industry for Australia. There's many good growers who, are, who really are ethical and, and want this fixed up. But then there's an underbelly. Um, and our research and others' research has found there's a norm of non-compliance. There's a norm of exploitation. And it's this extension pathway that creates the incentive, I guess, for people to put up with substandard work. So, for example, one particular story that sticks out to mind is um, when we were in Shepparton, um, we were talking to a, a group of young workers from Southeast Asia who wanted to get a second year on their visa. And like most young people, they left things to plan at the last minute. So they, you know, they've used up nine months on their visa and they're like, oh, I want to stay in Australia. Let's do 88 days on a farm. They follow a Facebook ad and they get out to Shepparton only to find that the employer um, has them in this crammed accommodation that they have to pay a lot of money for um, and that they have to stay in that accommodation in order to work on the farm. So they have no free choice of housing. Um, and the employer is obviously getting a cut from that overpriced accommodation. But the worst part of the story was this, is when we spoke to this group, I distinctly remember 
a young man and a young woman saying that to get to the farm, they would get picked up in a white van in the morning and there was 14 of them that would travel to that farm and each of them would be forced to rotate who sat in the front seat with the driver who would touch up that person on the way to the farm. So that was probably the worst example of sexual right. harassment that I'd heard of. Mm. And when we said, you know, did you complain? Did you report it? How did, you know, what did you do? And, and they, they sort of ultimately said, we felt we had no choice but to accept it because the clock was running out on mm. our 88 days. When we did ultimately report it to the farmer, um, he just moved that van driver around to another accommodation site for another one of his farms. And right. they felt that going to the Fair Work Ombudsman or the police would just be too difficult ultimately. And so, you know, this was a story we heard time and time again mm. of, of, of women feeling vulnerable on farms, of, of, of people putting up with extremely low rates of mm. pay. Or one British backpacker who I spoke to, um, he'd gotten into a relationship in his first year. He wanted to stay for his partner and he followed, He went up to Coffs Harbour to pick berries following a gum tree ad because there's no regulation about mm. recruitment. And so they're very vulnerable because they just go to places and there's no verification that the place actually has work or, or legal work. But he gets there and um, the work wasn't available for two weeks and so he's paying a lot of money to stay in this hostel where there's rats crawling around and he showed me pictures of this on his phone and then he gets to pick berries eventually. It's $8 an hour, obviously below the legal minimum, Completely. well below it. But he just needs to prove he's done 88 days. But he said, you know, I got my second year but I also got depression. Um, right. You know, yeah. and, and, and I think this is... The, the dark underbelly, yeah. 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 So these Gumtree ads and the Facebook ads, um, where 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 do they come from? Is it the farmers or is it some other yep. party? Yes, and so this is the thing. It's often intermediaries. It's often middlemen, you know, mm. the person with the van and the phone and it's not a regulated industry. So some state governments have tried to create labour hire regulations, so Queensland and Victoria. But what we really need is a national system of licensing so that if you're going to supply labour mm. to a farm, you are licensed and you're approved and you're audited. You don't have a criminal history. You have a legitimate visa to be in Australia yourself. You know, it, it, it needs to be like, for example, you know, with nursing and teaching when they supply contract labour, that, that labour is, is, is all regulated and above board. But right. workers, these migrant workers need to use these intermediaries because they need to find where the jobs are. And the farmers, typically, their core business is farming. It's not finding workers. And yeah. so um, they rely on the intermediaries as a, as a way to find labour quickly. Right, um, so it's these middlemen yes. that is the yep. issue. And, yep. and why don't these middle men or women get <laughs> caught out? <laughs> because if they do get caught, um, and so typically the way it works is the farmer will pay um, the intermediary $10,000 to supply 25 workers for the week. And from that, the intermediary is meant to give the wages to the worker, but they skim off the top and take you know, a huge cut from it. And that's why the worker ends up with $8. Mm. So often the farmer is paying the legal minimum of $21 an hour per worker, but then the worker only receives less than half of that. Yeah. Um, and time and time again, surveys have shown that fruit picking is the industry with the lowest wages out of all other sort of jobs that young people do. Mm. Um, but how do they get away with not being regulated is that there's no sort of physical office. Um, you know, they, they've just got a phone and a van and a business card. And if we shut down Mr X's operation, he opens up tomorrow as Mr Y. No, um, that sounds so, very ominous. Yes, it does. But there, there is a way to do this better. Yeah. You know, um, 
many countries around the world struggle with regulating fruit work. Um, but New Zealand, our closest neighbour, really has looked at this and done the hard work to make it work. And so I, I don't know if that was something you'd want to talk about. Talk about, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I'd yeah. love to hear your thoughts on how we can <laughs> fix this problem. <laughs> sure. So, in, so I guess one way of looking at this is migration is a system of doors. Mm -hmm. So the front door of the house, um, so the front door of Australia at the moment, is this program called the Seasonal Worker Program, and it's for workers from the Pacific Islands, so East Timor, Vanuatu, Tonga. And those workers, when they come to Australia, the government recognises that working on a farm is vulnerable work and mm -hmm. therefore we need to protect you. So the employers that are registered under that front door pathway, they have to be approved by the government. They have site visits, they're responsible for pastoral care. Um, the pay slips are all audited by the mm -hmm. Department of Employment. Um, they have to provide standard accommodation and it gets vetted and also the rents are, are approved by the government. So it's mm -hmm. a front door pathway that's regulated. But then you've got this sort of side door pathway of the backpackers and, and they are just streaming in um, through the side door, but there's no regulation. They're invisible to the government. The government doesn't know where the backpackers are going in Australia, who they're working for, how much they're getting paid, where they're living. And so the side door, it's kind of like you've left the side door to your house open and they're just streaming in and, and, and you don't know what's going on. And then there's the back door, which is actually illegal workers. So what people don't realise is that you, Izzy and myself, in fact, every Australian at some point or another would have bought fresh fruit or veg that was picked by illegal workers. Because we have about 20 to 30,000 illegal workers and that's a conservative estimate on farms. And, and they are the darkest underbelly of all of this. Most of them um, came to Australia thinking they were on a winning uh, ticket to a better life, that they were on a work visa but then they get to Australia from places like Malaysia or Indonesia and they realise you're only on a tourist visa and you've now paid $3,000 to me to bring you to Australia. You need to pay that debt back. So then they have to work on a farm to pay that debt back. Often the contractor will take their passports and so they're working illegally. They can't complain about anything because they'll mm. just get deported and they'll still have the debt. So really the worst part of this is that back door where yeah. there's 20 to 30,000 illegal workers who are living within the Australian community in the regions. They're afraid um, to get found out by the authorities. And in this time of COVID as well, they're particularly af afraid of coming forward for something like the vaccine or to do a COVID test mm. because if they present to the authorities, they're worried that then they'll get detected and they'll get sent home. So actually there's a real public health urgency at the moment for the government to address all of this. That's so true. Yeah. And so this side door, is that um, where that 88 days of farm yes. work, which is yep. a government incentive, yep. comes yep. from? Yeah. Right. And if I just told you quickly about the numbers and then I could perhaps tell you about New Zealand a little yeah, bit. So definitely. the front door pathway, which typically you would hope most people come through the front door because it's regulated. Yep. You don't want people coming through the side of the back. That's actually only typically got about 8,500 workers from the Pacific coming through. But every year pre-COVID, we had at least 30 to 38,000 backpackers coming and doing their 88 days on a mm -hmm. farm. And then, as I said before, we've got 20 to 30,000 undocumented migrants on farms. Mm. So the vast majority of fruit picking, fruit picking work is being done through the back door and side door options and not through that regulated above board mm. front door. So what New Zealand has done is they've shut down the side door and the back door and they've just got one door that's open, they regulate that, and the farm industry have worked with the government to make that pathway work for them. Yeah. 
and, and, and that's how they've cleaned up their industry because they had the same problems that we now have. They had them um, at the start of the 2000s and employers were saying we need more workers, we need more workers and instead of introducing other things like that side door pathway, the New Zealand government said we're going to introduce a program for Pacific workers like our front door but we're going to make it more flexible and to make it work for you because the problem in Australia is the farmers say the seasonal worker program doesn't work for us. We have to tell the government months in advance how many workers we need. It, we can't just get workers for two weeks to pick cherries. You know, we need to give them at least eight weeks work under the program. So there just isn't the flexibilities. So right. there's a huge rethink that needs to be done, um, but it has to be done or things will never change. Of course. So do you think that's realistic, those changes <laughs> for Australia? Yes, I do. But I think one of the problems we have is we have, and we saw this in our research, we have so much um, enmity, if you like, between the employers and the unions mm -hmm. and distrust of government. Right. And really to get this kind of solution, you need the three parties to really be working together. Mm -hmm. And I think the employers feel that if they trust the unions, the unions are going to burn them. And the unions feel that the employers are never going to come to the table with this. So, yeah. you know, even now we have a dispute in the commission about peace rates because one of the ways farmers can sort of turn a blind eye to exploitation is they can pay a worker by piece. So they can say, if you pick um, a bag of oranges um, and you will get paid, not the minimum wage, but you'll get paid according to your productivity. And so we spoke to, you know, I remember this German backpacker who went to Tassie and he said he went down for the pear season and there was only a few left on the trees. And so, of course, it would take him almost a day to fill a bin. And so he was just getting paid for one bin, so it'd be $20 for a day's work, which no Australian wow. would ever put up with. But he did to get his 88 days. But it's that peace rates um, loophole that allows that to happen. But the, from the farmer's perspective, they don't want to get rid of peace rates because it motivates workers to work hard. Mm. And they don't want to pay workers $21 an hour to work very slowly. So they like peace rates. But from a worker union perspective, peace rates is probably the main vehicle whereby workers are exploited mm. and farmers can kind of get away with it. Right, mm. okay. So can you describe, I can imagine it's quite complicated, but what is your role um, as a researcher um, in this, this whole issue? Yes, so I, the, I think the, the best research is the one that doesn't come into it with a preconceived idea but tries to find out what's actually happening on, happening on the ground and then as a lawyer to sort of propose legal and policy solutions that might address it. So actually the way I got involved in this Isabel is um, one of the biggest carrot farmers in Australia called me up out of the blue and said, you know, you put a submission to the government for a low school work visa for agriculture. How would we make that happen? And so I explained to her that we really would need the evidence base to show how workers move across farms in Australia and to see what the needs are. Mm. And you know, I explained to her that you wouldn't, you'd have to deal with the exploitation issue. No government's going to say, let's open the floodgates for a new visa to bring in more migrants if the ones that are here we're routinely exploiting. Um, and, and as part of that research, we had to travel all around Australia to try and understand how does migration impact on labour supply? So a really good example, Isabel, is when we went to WA, and actually that was the first time I'd been to WA before, but the way the 88 days work is the government is trying to channel backpackers away from the from the cities and into the regions because that's who, who need the workers. So in WA we went to three places and we drove 45 minutes from the sea 
CBD to Wanneroo, um, which is a vegetable farm growing area and there's strawberry farms there too. And we went into this room and there's over 40 growers in that room and they were clearly very agitated about workers. Even with the 88 days and the Pacific Worker Scheme, they, they felt they could not get enough workers. And the reason was this, backpackers would simply get on the plane to um, Perth and then they would get out at the airport, jump in their car and they would drive past Wanneroo because it wasn't an eligible postcode for the 88 days. So even though there was a great need for them to do work in that space, because it wasn't a postcode by which they could get a visa extension, they would drive on to Jinjin and, and um, but Binningyup. And when we went to those places, they were only another half an hour's drive north and south of Wanneroo. But when we got there, the growers were sort of sitting there with their arms folded, relaxed, you know, eating the nibbles. They didn't have any issues with labour supply because they were the closest towns to Perth that were eligible for the yeah. earlier days. And so they had literally backpackers every day emailing them, turning up to their front door, begging them for the opportunity to do work so they could get a visa extension. And so that example shows you how visa settings can distort labour supply and it can make some farmers better off and others very vulnerable and worse off. And in Wanneroo, when we asked the question, how many of you use illegal workers? Everybody started talking all at once. And we actually had a translator in the room because many of the farmers were from a Vietnamese background. But in the end, every farmer put up their hand and said, look, we use undocumented because we have no other option. Yeah. Um, Right. And we've spoken to many farmers who have said, if you take the undocumented workers out, let's just say the government suddenly got their act together and rounded them all up, put them in detention centres and deported 20 to 30,000 of them. Farmers have said, if you take them out and you actually do that, then you will just have massive shortages at the shops. You will have fruit rotting, rotting on the vines. Yeah. Um, and our industry will be in crisis. Right. OK. Yeah. Well, what happened with COVID-19 then? With, yes. with people unable to enter Australia. Yes, and, and so that's been really interesting. With the borders shut, we didn't have this flow of backpackers coming in. Now, we still had undocumented migrants, but um, they couldn't necessarily move across state boundaries. So typically, for example, the undocumented migrants from Mildura and Shepparton will travel across into New South Wales for the cherry season, for example. Mm -hmm. um, but they couldn't do that this year because you needed, you know, your cross-border registration permit yeah. um, and they don't have those documents. So it has affected the mobility of undocumented migrants. It stopped the, the flow of backpackers. Um, and we've started to arrange sort of bubbles with Pacific countries that don't have a lot of COVID to allow them to come in. Um, but that's been very slow trickling in. So really growers have felt a lot of insecurity this year. We've had $40 million of fruit and veg just rotting on the vines. Um, so there's been a lot of crop loss this year. Yeah. Um, and it's only going to get worse because there have been some backpackers in the country and some of them have been continuing to work. There's also been unemployed Australians, but even though the government has thrown money at unemployed Australians to go into the regions to work, um, I think the WA government even had an ad about, you know, go and work on a farm and you'll meet your mate, you know, farmer wants a wife kind of <laughs> yeah, style okay. ad. And, you know, Australians didn't want to do this work. Mm. I guess JobKeeper was available and yeah. that's the reality. Our safety net is pretty good. So mm. you either work really hard in inclement weather and, and get your minimum pay or maybe not even, or you just get your, your money deposited in your account from Centrelink. And, right. and so it's it's difficult that the incentives don't quite match up. But even mm. when the government throws extra money and says you can earn extra money through working on a farm, locals don't want to do it. And one of the reasons for that is because the industry itself 
has become a bit of a ghetto for temporary migrants, you know. Yeah. Um, Australians don't necessarily want to work in an industry which has this, has this reputation of having second-class citizens in it. Um, so I think really there needs to be a, a reset and COVID provides that opportunity with the borders shut. The government could say, all right, we're going to go back to the drawing board and, mm. and, and redesign labour supply for this industry. I was going to say, it, it, obviously it's a huge challenge, but it may provide an opportunity with this yep. reduced mobility, yep. reduced influx. But why are Australians not wanting to work in this industry? Yep. What, what's the barrier? Okay, I think, so a couple of things. I think one of them is there's a lack of career pathways. I remember talking to a young man in Virginia who was working on a farm and he was doing fruit picking work and, and we asked him, you know, what were his career aspirations? And he wanted to work in, in, in manual work. He, he didn't want to go to university and get a degree. He wanted to work in, in that kind of work. But he said, I don't see a future for myself on the farm because it's just fruit picking and there's nowhere to go. Yeah. So he was going to try another industry like that, like factory work or manufacturing, um, because he just didn't see any pathway in farming. And, and the places, the farms that have been successful in retaining young Australians and keeping them in their business, they're the ones that have developed, have really worked hard to develop a pathway for those workers. Mm. So they've given them skills, they're using technology in their workplace. Like one farm, all the young workers had iPads and they were controlling the climate and, mm. and um, the watering and everything through this technology. And I think young people are attracted to that and they want to see um, an opportunity to grow their skill set and to find meaning through their work. But if yeah. it's literally just picking oranges and putting them in a bucket and there's nothing being beyond that, yeah. then young people don't want to do that sort of work. So I think career pathways is important. I think fixing the pay and conditions is important. Um, the reputation of the industry needs to have, you know, it needs to be refreshed and revamped because of all the terrible media stories that have come out mm. in the last decade. Um, and I think ultimately we need a greater emphasis on vocational training, so agricultural pathways from TAFE and colleges in, into mm. farms. Definitely. Yeah, it sounds like there's lots we need to do in this space in lots of different industries, uh, but it sounds like it's such an important issue that we can't ignore. So thank you so much for bringing that to light for us. Uh, I've learned a huge amount on this podcast. And then thank you for your time on the Discovery Pod today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Discovery Pod, brought to you by the University of Adelaide. Join us next time when we discuss superstars in STEM.